All right, kids ages uh, three through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. And the rest of you, if you have a Bible, if you turn in it to the book of Luke, that's in the New Testament. It's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, so it's the third book of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. It's printed for you uh, in your order of worship. It'll be projected behind me. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We've got a bunch of them on the back table. That is our gift to you, so grab one of those on your way out. Or right now, if you don't mind doing that. Any way you can, though, it'd be great to have it in front of you. There we go. I hope it's uh, evident by now, um, especially for those of you who've been around a while. Today's a bit of a shift, right? So, uh, historically, um, the church has set apart the four Sundays previous to Christmas and called it the season of Advent. Um, It is a time for us to intentionally think about and lean into the coming of Jesus. But when I say that, I need to qualify it. Because normally during this season, what we think of when I say the coming of Jesus is uh, celebrating Jesus' first coming, right? Baby Jesus, meek and mild, all that jazz, right? Sweet little dear baby Jesus in his golden fleece diaper, all that stuff, right? Um, We do this. We do this, 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 this uh, entering into this season of longing, thinking about the fact that each Sunday a different candle will be lit as a way to say we're that much closer to celebrating Jesus' first coming as a way for us to lean into the fact that every week the way we come in here and see another candle lit, we're leaning into the fact that we are that much closer to, to Jesus' second coming. That, in fact, Advent, as much as it's about Christmas, is really about Jesus coming again. That's what this season is about, and it's meant for us to build into that longing into ourselves by entering into a period of longing. And this year at Holy Cross, we're doing that by looking at five songs. Uh, Five songs that are recorded for us in Scripture, not five uh, Christmas tunes. Uh, The first four are given to us in Luke's account of Jesus' life. Uh, all were sung as people were impacted by the announcement of, the co- or the presentation of, the coming of the Savior. The last one that we'll deal with after Christmas is from, is from Paul, the Apostle Paul's reflection on God becoming flesh in Jesus in Philippians. This first week, though, we look to the song of a girl who not only reflected on the coming of Jesus in abstraction, but the fact that the Savior, that God himself was coming, taking residence in her very body. So if you have your place in Luke 1, if you'd stand in honor of God's word, that's our habit here. We're going to be reading verse 46 to 55. As we do so, let me remind us, friends, that this is God's word that we are about to read. We've already had it read to us twice this morning. This is God's word. This is not something that we chose for ourselves, something that we somehow lay claim on. It lays claim on us. So we are to receive it in that way. Let's hear it this morning. This is God's word. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel 
in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into this place full of different uh, concerns, different thoughts. Some of us coming from stories of great joy and triumph this week. Others of us coming from stories of struggle. Uh, some of us are anxious. Others of us are bored. Uh, we, we come into this place all right now needing the same thing, though. We need to hear from you. We need to meet with you. We need you to come and visit us. And so, Lord, we ask that during this time that you would speak to us. Would you soften our hearts And open them that we might receive you. Would you open our ears to hear from you and our eyes to see you? And after we are done, would you open our lips to give you praise? For you are the only one that we need. And so, Jesus, would you let you, what you have done in your work, even in this, your incarnation, your becoming flesh, come to the fore? Would would you let the one who speaks fall to the wayside? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. I want you to think with me for a moment, if you can. I want you to imagine entering into a, a kind of a period of waiting. And what I mean by waiting is not just waiting like you did when you were a kid, waiting for Christmas Day. Some of you are still living into that right now already. If you're anything like my family, the day, Thanksgiving is done, which means the tree goes up, the, dec- the decorations come out. Christmas music comes on, and everyone's waiting for Christmas Day. But I'm, not, I'm talking about more than that. I'm talking about longer, a longer period of wait than a month, and with far more at stake than a few presents. Imagine this. For 400 years, you and your family and your people have been waiting for God to come and answer his promises. Not just to answer his promises, even just to speak again. You know the story, you know that God has promised to write the world to make you right, but it hasn't happened yet. And every day you wake up and you recite the same thing, this thing called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. A way of saying, God is God alone and not all of these other pretenders. And yet you live under the thumb of a man who calls himself Lord, who claims himself to be a God. But then from out of nowhere, God reveals himself. And what he reveals is that your long wait, not just yours, but your parents' wait, and your grandparents' wait, and your great-grandparents, and your great-great-grandparents, and your great-great-grandparents' wait, and on and on, that all of their wait is finally over. The time has come not just for God to speak, but to finally do what he said he would do back when two people stood in a garden with a snake at their feet and nothing to clothe them but their shame. And so you do what only seems natural. You sing. That's what we're going to be looking at today. That's what we're going to be looking at the next uh, several weeks as we lean into Christmas. There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful. We're going to look at this in three ways. We're going to look at a song of joy. We're going to look at a song of hope. And then finally, we're going to look at what it means to sing the song. Okay? So let's, let's begin by looking at this song, which is probably familiar to many of you. If you grew up in a Christian home, this, this is probably more or less, you, you at least have heard this before. Uh, others of you, you know, it's going to be completely new. So either way, let's take a closer look at it. Traditionally, this, the thing that I just read is called the Magnificat. 
Okay? That's Latin for the first word of, the, the, of Mary's song. My soul magnifies. Magnificat, which is kind of better than if they had done the first word in Greek, which is megalune, which sounds like megaluni, and then that, that's just weird. So magnificat is fine. So we'll go with that. But um, it's the song of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So let me set the stage for us as we get into this song. Mary uh, is in her teenage years. She's a teen, young teen probably. She's engaged to a dude named Joseph, who's a carpenter in Nazareth. She's, a, she's a, from a, a good family, not a, not a well-off family. They're not in poverty, but they're not exactly well-to-do. They're working class. They're like most people in Nazareth. Nazareth is a town in the northern part of Israel. And one day, we're not entirely certain what she was doing, probably in the midst of her household chores, the things that she would normally do in her family uh, as she waits for her uh, wedding day, this period of betrothal that would have lasted a long time. Um, She's in the midst of her duties, an angel shows up, and he tells her that she is going to have a son by the power of the Holy Spirit, which she is to name Jesus. Now, think with me for a minute. Besides the bizarre fact that all of a sudden an angel shows up and tells you, hey, you're pregnant now, guess what? You know, uh, think with me on the, the cultural things that are going on in Mary at the time. She lives in a culture which is a little down on single motherhood. Right? Now, our culture is a little down on single motherhood too. Let's not throw too many stones, especially teenage motherhood, which she would have been. But it's a little worse even... Uh, than here. You see, in Mary's day, you could be completely untouchable after this. In fact, you could even be put to death. So she's told that she's going to have a baby, even though she's never been with a man, which, like, no one is going to believe. And the angel says that this baby is God's salvation plan. And her response is not saying, what are you going to do about my reputation? Her response is simply to rejoice. Now look, we're Protestants, right? So we don't, we don't like to give Mary any props. But, but this girl, she knows her God. Okay? That's not a response anyone in this room would have. Let's be honest. Okay? So we can, we can at least say, look, this girl, this girl was a godly woman. But, but let's look at this song. Okay, let's look at song, uh, the song of joy first with rejoicing in the Savior. Look at verse 46. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My, soul reju- my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, that word Savior has become so commonplace in, in North America that um, when, when we talk about it, it's become almost vacuous, right? Because like nearly every dude who gets up to an, accept an award for some song in which it's gla- like what's glamorized in the song is like womanizing and violence and, and, and greed, he gets up after that and says he wants to thank his Lord and Savior, right? So at that point, we, we have completely, the word means very little to, to us. But to Mary, it meant something very real, something very deep. If you're going to talk about a Savior, that implies that you think you need saving, right? You're not going to talk about a Savior if, if you think all you need is helping or teaching. She didn't say, I, I, my, my soul rejoices in God, my teacher, God, my helper. God, who, who kind of set boundaries for me. God, my savior. Now, that's not what most of us believe we need, but you can't understand this song without understanding that presupposition. 
Because, you see, the Bible is clear, and it says it over and over and over again, that humanity, all of us, not just a few of us, not a, a subsection of us, a particular culture of us, a demographic, that all of us are stuck in this genetic disorder that it calls sin. Now, as I say that little three-letter word, don't check out on me, because it's not probably what you think. That's not preacher talk. It's actually all over the place in the Bible, but it's not what you think. We think sin is what we do, and it is kind of. We think it's what we do, right? We, we sin. Uh, but Jesus said that what we do springs from what we are, which means that we sin because we're sinners. It isn't our sinning that makes us sinners. You see the difference? We act out of an identity, an identity that we have, and thus we do things out of it. Because we are sinners, we sin. And if that is the case, then you and I can't just improve our behavior, get a little help, get, clear up our thought life, and everything gets better for us. In fact, it, it kind of sidesteps the entire, this, this idea of sin that the Bible gives us, opposed to our culture, actually sidesteps the entire conversation about behavior because it gets to the heart. Not just what you do, but why you do it. Who you do it for. The entire story of the Bible, from where it all went wrong in the third chapter of the whole book, right to the end, declares that it is God who saves. God has to save Because we were made for dependent relationship with him. And so for things to be fixed, we all have to return to dependence. And that's what Mary sees as happening. That's why she declares, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. What is happening with her, with the baby in her womb, is God coming to save. And the reasons for for that kind of rejoicing are laid out in verses 47 to 50. Look there if you have your Bibles in front of you. Now, this is hard to see in the English, uh, especially ESV, which we read from. It kind of jumbles it a little bit. But uh, if you were looking at the original, you would see that she gives two particular reasons. One in verse 48 and one in verse 49. In verse 48, it says that God looked upon her neediness. Now, our translation said humble estate. That's a very kind, very... um, Vanilla way to say it, but what it means is neediness, okay? The word is, in the original, is consistently used in the Bible for people who are unable to provide for themselves. They are needy. It's used a ton for the poor. And what what this points to is not that Mary said, look, I I don't have two dimes to rub together. That's not what she meant. What what she's doing is we're, we're seeing that Mary sees herself as in desperate need, that she is without resources to make her situation better. She needs, she, she is needy. And she fleshes that out by saying that every generation will see her as blessed. In other words, God is meeting her in her need and taking her from needy to blessed. She isn't doing it. He is. The second reason she gives is in verse 49. And it's this, that he who is mighty has done great things for me. Well, when, when that word mighty, the word that we translate mighty, is used in connection with God, and it often is, the images, especially in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, are as God as a warrior. God rising up and fighting battles for his people. It, it's, it's, it's God in beast mode, right? God in beast mode is described as mighty. He is the mighty one. And here's what this is pointing to Again, Mary believed the story of the Bible, and the story of the Bible is that all of creation was created for God, with humanity at the pinnacle of it. And when we rebelled, when we declared our independence from him, all of creation broke. And God promised to fix it, 
not through just quelling the rebellion, like kind of putting it to death, kind of getting rid of it. I mean, think with, think with me on that for a minute, because that would have seemed the logical response, right? Humanity has rebelled. Well, I'll get rid of you and start over, right? All I need is a little dirt and some breath. <sighs> All right, we're good. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't wipe the slate clean and start again, even though he's the king and could have. He, he could have simply judged the rebels and been done. But you see the last part of that verse? He's the mighty one. The last part of that verse says that he has mercy on those who fear him. Now that's huge. Now don't get hung up on that whole fear thing because we think of fear and we think of afraid and that's terror and God's thunder and lightning and throwing lightning bolts and we're all like, oh, is he going to hurt me? That's not the way the Bible uses the word. The word fear in the Bible generally means to honor, to respect. In other words, it's, it's living with God as being God and not us as being God. It's having things line up the way they were supposed to. In other words, it means that for those to return, who return to him, those who fear him, who return to letting him be God and us not be, he has mercy. Look, what he's saying, what she's saying there is that it's not those who get it together, kind of clean up their lives and make things work. It's not those who follow the rules. It's, it's not those who make up their failures to him. It's just those who return to him. So she is rejoicing because that is the Savior. God is rescuing her, having mercy on her and the world through this baby. So the song of joy gives way to the song of hope. Let's look at the character of that first in verses 51 to 53. In these verses, what you get is a series of reversals. Did you notice that as I was reading it? This kind of series of reversals. You have the proud that are scattered, the mighty, or, or another, in other translations it says the princes, they're brought low, they're brought off of their thrones, uh, and you have the rich being sent away empty. But at the same time, you have the humble, in other words, the needy, same word, the needy are being raised up, the hungry are being satisfied. Now, that may seem strange to you, so listen close. As I've said over and over, Mary is clearly steeped in the language of the Bible. Because in the Bible, the proud, the mighty, and the rich are all words that are generally and consistently used for those who are independent from God. Who view themselves as as being independent from him, as not needing them. The proud are those who think they don't need God because they understand how things work, right? They get it. They get how things work. They, they, they view themselves highly, right? They're good enough. They're smart enough. They're able enough. don't really need God. The mighty, the princes, obviously those are in power. They don't need God because they have influence, right? They have influence over others. They're able to accomplish whatever they desire. They don't need God. They have power. The rich, well, that should be easy for us, right? They don't need God because they have money. Who needs God to solve your problems? We got the Benjamins. Benjamin takes care of it just fine. Thank you. Right? You see the connection? All of these have been fooled into thinking that they can do life apart from God. That they can can manage things apart from him. And the reason Mary's hope is in a reversal is because the world, our world, the world we live in, let's be honest, the world rewards that, doesn't it? The world rewards cleverness and thinking that you can do life without the crutch of Jesus, right? It, it rewards power, and the power always seem to the powerful always seem to have 
things together. The rich always seem to have it together. We, we put them on the cover of magazines and, and are voyeur, voyeuristically looking into their lives thinking they're our friends. We want to be them and be like them. All of these folks look on the outside as if they have it all together. What the Bible tells us, though, is that they don't. Let me change that. That we don't. If you look around, most of us here in this place would f- could easily fall into one of those categories, couldn't we? No, no. Most of us hope in one of these things, don't we? We want to trust in our ability. We want to trust in our power. We want to trust in our money. And Mary says, though, that when God writes the world, when he affects his rescue plans, that it will be the humble. It will be those that are needy, those who see their need that God will uphold, that he will lift up. See, that's the crazy thing about Christianity. And it's what sets it apart from all other world religions, all other philosophies. Christianity tells you that all you need, okay, all you need to return to God All you need to be redeemed, all you need to be saved is need. All you need is need. What Mary says here is played out even in the life of her son later in this very book. Because the only people that Jesus ever turns away, and don't don't fall into the cultural narrative that Jesus never turned people away. Oh, he did. He got in people's faces. Way worse than most preachers do, right? The only people that Jesus ever turned away were those who refused to recognize that they are needy. Everyone, everyone wants Jesus as their guru. Our culture is full of people who want Jesus as their guru or, or their, their guide, their, their life coach. Jesus says, no, no, that's not what I'm here for. Jesus didn't come to give you a hand up. He either saves you because you are needy and see it, because you are broken beyond your ability to fix, guilty without excuse, or you're doing just fine without him. Thank you very much. So that's the character of the hope that she's looking for. The reason for the hope finishes the song. Look down at verses 54 and 55. Now, there are two things I want to point out here. The first is this connection with Abraham. Okay? Most of us, if we know anything about old Abe, it's that he had many sons. Uh, and I'm one of them, and so are you. But here's the thing, he didn't really? <laughs> Isn't that strange? He, he didn't have but a couple, but that would mess up the song. So we keep, we'll stick with the song. Um, here, here's how Abe fits with the whole story. When God promises in the garden to rescue humanity, we've broken it, we've blown it, we've failed. Uh, humanity is now pitched in darkness. We are bent away from God now by nature and, and, and guilty before him, and God promises to fix things. And as that promise begins to work out, he chooses this dude named Abraham. Abraham wasn't seeking him. He wasn't a seeker. Abraham was worshiping false gods in the city of Ur. God shows up and says, hey, pick up your tent. You're coming with me. Abe wisely says, okay. And they start going. And God makes a promise to him. He tells him that it is going to be through his family, through Abraham's family, that he is going to rescue the world. He makes a promise, a covenant. And that covenant is the basis for God's rescue plan. He's going to do this through Abraham's family. But if you've read the Bible, if you've read especially the Old Testament, you know there's a problem with that. Abraham's family was just as messed up as the rest of us are. 
They keep failing over and over and over again. And this is where verse 54 comes into play. Because you see, God's choice of Abraham's family wasn't just to bless them. It's not, in fact, anytime God rescues someone, it is not purely for their blessing. Like, hey, I got you, you're good, don't worry about things, I got this from here on. God blessed Abraham, blesses his people for them to be a blessing. In other words, they weren't just to be his privileged children, but as Mary calls them here, his servant. His servant. His servant to do what? His servant to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Like Becca read this morning from Isaiah. Problem. They're messed up. They're broken like you and me, and so they couldn't. They couldn't. Drowning people can't rescue other drowning people. And this is why Mary sings what she does. God didn't abandon his rescue plan because the people were messed up, right? He knew they were messed up. He knew it's not like he was like, oh, Abe didn't see that one coming. Man, y'all are jacked. I don't know what to do now. Oh, I'll come up with another idea. He already knew that was going to happen. He, he had planned it this way. But instead, he stepped into Abraham's family to rescue everyone. That's what Mary means when she says that he helped his servant. They couldn't do what was needed, so he came in and he did it for them. He helped them. In Jesus, God came to rescue us. Came to deliver us, first and foremost, from the penalty of sin by uniting us to his judgment-bearing death on the cross. That's what the cross is about. It's, it's saving us from the penalty of sin. But he also saved us from the power of sin by uniting us to his resurrected life, giving us new life. And one day, delivering us from the presence of sin by coming again to remove it from the world. The baby in her womb, Jesus, is the reason for Mary's hope. He would fulfill God's promise to rescue us from our sin and to reconcile us from God. And so she does what anyone would. She sings. Now, what I want to do right now is I want us to think a little bit about how this applies to us, okay? Here in this place. I mean, this is a time of year when everything is conspiring against our desire to think on a Savior, right? Every holiday movie that comes on, most of us are are excited about the fact that you're going to get your, your Frosty the Snowman's coming on. and you're, Now they have actually flyers for your Thanksgiving Day paper that tell you the schedule of when every TV show is going to be on, right? If you still do that. I think they're all on Netflix, though. So. Or Hulu. Just go to Hulu. Anyway. But everything this time of year is conspiring against our desire to think on a Savior. And so this is meant to help us. But how? Okay, let me, let me suggest two ways. The first is singing our need. So let's look at that. You you can't read this passage without being struck by how Mary viewed herself. She grasps her need in a way that is utterly unique but shouldn't be. Then she casts this theology of reversal that kind of strikes us as crazy. Or, if if we're being really honest, some of it probably just strikes us as just jealousy, right? Of course God's going to upturn the rich because you're poor. Of course God's going to upturn the powerful because you're weak, right? It it kind of can strike us as jealousy. But here's what it really means. So listen to me for a second. Mary clearly sees what all of us struggle to get. That we're needy. All of us. Care what you drived up in today. We are all needy. 
Some of us know that, right? Some of us wear our neediness on our sleeve. We don't want to. We just can't help it. It's right there in front of everyone's eyes. And maybe that's because you struggle with an addiction. Or maybe it's because you've sold to others who do. Maybe it's because your marriage is a wreck. Or or simply, you move, you're not married, but you move from partner to partner. Some of us kind of simply wear our need openly. It's kind of there for everybody to see. And and so we walk around, sometimes with a chip on our shoulder, like, what do you got to say to me, right? Others of us aren't so open as that, though. We hear what I just said about those with need on their sleeve, and we kind of think on them with a kind of condescending pity, right? These poor folks. Can't believe their lives are such a mess. All the while, we keep our neediness neatly hidden. Because see, most of us, my guess would be looking out at this room and looking out at the people. I know many of you. My, my guess is that most of us have made an art of keeping our neediness hidden. And we do that by keeping ourselves hidden. We keep people at arm's length. Because of what others would do if they, if, if, if they found out. What would they do if they know what I do? The doors are closed. No one can see. And then there's others of us who aren't sure about this neediness thing, because maybe you're still checking out this Jesus guy, and you're not sure about needing him. I mean, you're pretty good, right? You do all right. I mean, you're not Mother Teresa, but you're doing okay. God can't expect everybody to be Mother Teresa, right? Listen, the Bible tells us that we are all needy. Some of us express that that neediness, that brokenness, that need by, by running as far away from God as we can. Flipping him the bird and flipping anyone else the bird who would tell us anything along the way. And we're just like, look, this is the way I'm going to do it. Others of us express it by trying to show that we're, we're actually doing okay apart from him. We're, we're, no, we're not perfect, but we're doing all right. Listen, let me invite you to something this Advent. Stop pretending. I know that's scary. I know that it's scary to stop pretending either that you care that you're needy. You know that you are, but you, care. you don't care. You do, but you just don't want anyone else to think that you do. I know it's scary to, to, to just stop the pretending that you're not really that needy. I know it's going to ask you to leave behind the things that you thought make you safe or the things that you believe your identity uh, is found in, but those things can't truly help you. Denying our neediness, kind of putting up the front, is like building a tinker toy wall to hold back a hurricane. It's like, it's like uh, you know, I, I, my family yearly goes to the beach, and without, without fail, right, when you get a group of kids on the beach, they want to build a sandcastle. And where do they want to build a sandcastle? Not where it's going to last. Down where the tide's coming in, because every child believes that their wall can keep the water out. And every one of us believes that our walls can keep people out. God is holding out mercy for you in Jesus, and all you need is your need. All you need is to stop pretending and admit it to him. That's singing our need. Let me finish with singing our hope. You, you know, here's what, here's what ultimately attracted me to Christianity when I became a Christian uh, my freshman year of college. It was that Christianity, what's so great about Christianity is ultimately it's not about you. And it's not about me. 
Christianity, first and last, is about Jesus. It's completely about Jesus. Our hope is not based on how well we can do, how smart we are, how responsible we can be. It's solely on the grace of God in Jesus. This is, this is why Christmas matters. Look, if Jesus were just a teacher, okay, if Jesus were just a rule bringer, who cares when the dude was born? I mean, seriously, if you thought about that, if Jesus is just here to kind of give you a few more rules to follow like everyone else, why aren't you, like, celebrating the birth of every senator who creates a new law for you? Like, of course, it, it makes no sense. But, if he is the whole point, if he is the one who came to rescue us, to live like we couldn't, to die like we wouldn't, and then to rise again to make us new, then his birth is like the first day of spring after the longest winter you can imagine. Here's what this means. I don't care, as we talked about need, right? Here's where this ties into hope. I don't care if your life looks pretty or gritty, okay? I I don't care if you are here this morning and your life is looking real nice, if it's looking real nice on the outside, but you know better, or is a train wreck. Your life can be jacked up beyond all belief. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because your hope can't be in your life. Mine can't be in my life. Your hope is in Jesus' life. Your hope isn't in what you've done or not done. It's in what Jesus has done. Our hope is in a God who is holy beyond imagining who is perfectly just, and who we have wronged. But our hope is in that same God who is loving and merciful and wants relationship with us. The glory of God is found in the fact that this holy and just and loving God came in the flesh to rescue you and me. That he came not just to come and say, here's the way you get back to me. He came to get us back to him. To reconcile us to himself. And now he offers that to any and all who simply declare their need and run to Jesus. In other words, to anyone who will sing like Mary. Would you pray with me? Father, often the last thing we want to do is declare our need. And as we think on a young girl, a teenage girl, declare that she's going to have a baby that everyone's going to think badly of her, that no one's going to understand, certainly no one's going to believe, because virgins don't get pregnant. It was, it's no more true today than it was then. And yet here is a girl who declared joy, rejoiced, because, because she understood her need and understood that God was finally coming to do something about it. Lord, would all of us here in this room, whether we are Christian now, have been for 70 years, or whether we don't know Jesus at all. We're checking him out. Would you, let, would you impact all of us with our need so that we might also grasp hold of our hope, which is not in how good we can do or how bad we've done, but in Christ alone. Would you help us to do that? And so to move into the world as beggars helping other beggars where to find bread, as 
as, as the hopeless who have been filled with hope, helping other hopeless people find it. Not in us, not in our system, not in our thinking, but in our Savior. Would you let this Advent season be all about Jesus, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.